Another. So, mark that on your calendar. We'd love for you to come and join us next Sunday night uh, in worship. Matthew chapter 7, we are moving towards the end of our series in the discipleship. Uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Matthew 5 through 7, studying the words of Jesus, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, I mentioned last Sunday, we did verses 13 and 14. We're going to bounce back because I skipped verse 12 last week. The reason I skipped it was I ended up with two sermons, uh, and so instead of trying to preach both of them at one time, I decided to break them in, into what they should be. So we're just going to be looking, uh, backtracking just a bit, but looking at verse 12 this morning. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but I had this experience fairly often early on in our marriage, and it would usually happen on Cindy's birthday, or it would happen on Christmas Day, or maybe on Valentine's Day, those tend to be days where you give and receive some type of gift. Uh, and uh, early on in our marriage, I would get something for Cindy, and I would give it to her, and she would unwrap it and open it, whatever, and she'd look at it, and she would say, oh, wasn't that so nice? <laughs> that was so nice of you to think of me. And you could tell by the tone of voice, you could tell by the expression um, that you'd missed it pretty badly. <laughs> That, uh, that you had not gotten the correct gift. Now, I have a theory about this, and, uh, and my theory is that I wanted credit for getting Cindy a gift more than I cared about what I got her. Because if I really cared about what I got her, if I really put the time into it and the thought into it, if I really thought of her first and not me just wanting to get accolades from my wife, I would have either studied a little bit more carefully around our house or, or in her life the things that she likes, the things that she likes more, the things that she likes less, and I would have been a better gift giver. So I, I caught on very quickly. It only took me about 12 years of marriage to figure that out, and uh, I'm a quick study, and I eventually started thinking about Cindy before I thought about what I was going to get her because my attitude shifted and my goal changed from just wanting to get credit about what I had done and making it really about me to thinking about her first. Matthew chapter 7, just one verse, verse 12. Jesus teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. And he says the following. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word this morning as, uh, as people who, in many respects, want to know you more deeply, want to follow you more faithfully. Lord, we come to you this morning with a, uh, with a sense of uh, wanting to learn, uh, wanting to worship you with our minds and our intellect, not, not just with our emotions. It's good to have a full heart. It's good to uh, feel deeply about our faith. That is very, very important, uh, the emotional aspect of our faith. But it is also important uh, that we understand you as you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture from an intellectual point of view, that we would worship you as you call us to, worship you with all of our mind. Yet, Father, we don't want to know just for the sake of knowledge. We want to know because we look at our lives and we see where we fall short. We see where there's a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live our lives. 
And this verse is, is one more opportunity to take a good, honest look in the mirror at our hearts and our minds and our souls and ask the question again, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We know that we are saved by your grace and your mercy. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our actions. We're not saved by simply being able to say we're better than someone else. We are saved only because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. He is the author of our salvation. He is the one in whom we place our faith. But he also calls us to follow him. He calls us to be on a journey of discipleship. And he has taught us what that means. And so as we come to this passage for disciples, about discipleship, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would teach us. Lord, for those who are here this morning may be curious about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They haven't yet made up their minds about that. Lord, I pray that they would see, uh, not us this morning, but they would see your word. They would see the beauty and the glory and the grace and the compassion that you give to us in in this sentence this morning. Lord Jesus, move me out of the way. I pray that you would forgive my sin. Don't let me be an obstacle, Father, but rather teach us, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know you, that we would love you because you first loved us. We pray in your name. Amen. So if it's possible to make gift giving about yourself, is it actually possible to, to flip that, to turn it around and to understand uh, that, that being a disciple of Jesus is, uh, is really thinking about others, is really thinking about others in a very significant way? Let me give you the sermon in a sentence this morning, following Jesus must include caring for others as one of my primary concerns. It's not the only thing that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. There, there are many other pieces of this message that have to do with other aspects of our lives. But ultimately, in this particular sentence, Jesus is asking me the question, Tom, how do you care for others? What is your attitude toward them? And the goal is that I would have an undivided heart, that you would have an undivided heart as a disciple, that we would rely on his faithfulness and that we would, we would follow him. So what does it mean for us to care for others as one of our primary concerns? Well, I'm going to give you four observations out of this text. The first one is this. Jesus sees our keen self-interest. We have a a very keen self-interest in our own lives. Jesus starts off the statement by saying, whatever you wish others would do to you. I sent out an email this week, maybe you received it, uh, and I asked you to perhaps make a list, and if you have it with you, you you could break it out this morning. How do you want others to treat you? When you look at your life and the things that are important to you, you say, I wish people would treat me like X. Uh, what does that look like in your life? So I gave that some, actually, some very serious thought over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's part of the reason why this turned into two sermons, because I was spending a lot of time really thinking about what's important to me in my relationships with others when I'm on the receiving end. The first thing that I jot, I have five things, and I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. The first one is respect. I just want people to, you know, acknowledge that I'm here uh, in a way that takes, you know, my existence into account and that there's, there's a sense of appreciation simply for me as a person. So that was my first one. My second one is that I know there are going to be times when people need to tell me things I don't want to hear. I know there are going to be times when I need correction. If you're a person that doesn't need correction, you've died and already gone to heaven. 
and you're still in this room, so that hasn't happened to you, and it hasn't happened to me. Every one of us at times needs someone in our life who loves us enough to be truthful with us. But I want those two things to go together. This is actually a quote out of Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul is talking about Christian maturity. What does it mean to really be a disciple of Jesus in in a fuller sense of the word? And he says, speaking the truth in love. So we're honest with one another. We, we talk about those things that may be difficult, but we do so motivated out of love. We do so because we want what is best for the other person. I always cringe when someone starts to correct me, and, I, and I'm worried about how they feel about me deep down inside. I get a little nervous about that. So this is one of the things on my list. If you're going to tell me the truth, could you love me while you're in the process? My third thing is that I'd like to have the benefit of the doubt if there's something that's called into question. I'd like for you to at least assume that I'm at least a relatively okay guy. You don't have to, you know, put me up there with Mother Teresa or anybody really great, but, but if you're wondering, you hear maybe a rumor about me. I'd, you know, if it's a negative rumor, I'd love for there at least to be a small question mark in your mind. You don't even have to go so far as to say, oh, Tom would never do that, okay? But maybe you could say, gosh, that doesn't quite sound like him. Just getting the benefit of the doubt. My fourth thing is forgiveness because there are going to be times when you give me the benefit of the doubt and you shouldn't because I really did mess it up. I really did blow it, and I'm going to need someone to say to me, it's okay, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to let that break our relationship with one another, our friendship with one another. There are plenty of times when Cindy or our children have had to say to me, you know, Tom, I forgive you. That's not going to you know, ruin our, our, our marriage. Dad, I forgive you. I, I, I love you enough that I, I will forgive that. I'm going to need forgiveness. That's one of my key things. And my last one on my list is I need encouragement in my faith. I need to grow as a disciple of Jesus. And that doesn't just kind of happen by getting out of bed in the morning. And you have to be really careful when you're a pastor that you not let your job become your life. That you don't say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus and I'm growing in my faith just because I'm a pastor and just because I'm preparing sermons or I'm doing, you know, religious Christian type of things. That's a trap that a lot of pastors can very easily fall into. So I need people in my life who will actually encourage me, strengthen me in my faith. So that's, that's my list. So whatever your list may be, um, as I looked at that and I looked at this verse, I thought seriously about it. I said, these are the things that are most important to me. Now, I want to suggest to you, uh, as humbly as I can, that's a pretty good list, isn't it? That's not, a, that's not a bad list. I'm hoping that, did anybody, if you're willing to share it, anybody in the room have e- one of these on your list? Okay, so I'm not totally by myself. Good. All right. So it's not a bad list. The list is not the problem, okay? But we have to read very carefully what Jesus says next, be- next because what he wants to do is reorient our attention. He wants to to move our attention from ourselves, and he wants to take that, and he wants to grow it in a very different direction. So Jesus sees our interest, our self-interest, but he also wants to expand our passion. Whatever you wish others would do to you, what? Do also to them. How we want to be treated must, must be expanded to include others. I need to be thinking about others when I'm thinking about my particular list. I want you to notice that this instruction is positive. It's not negative. It doesn't say, don't do certain things to other people. What Jesus is not teaching here is not 
what to avoid. He's done that in other places in the Sermon on the Mount, has he not? He said, I, you, you say that if, uh, if you uh, commit adultery, that's a sin. But I tell you, if you look at a woman and you think lustful thoughts, you're already guilty. So don't do that. So he's already told us some things, some do's and don'ts. But that's not a, there's not a don't here. But it's rather what we should embrace. John Stott, who is a, a very famous theologian and commentator on this particular passage of Scripture, has talked about this important nuance. I just want to read a little bit out of his thoughts for you this morning. He says, Much has been made by various commentators on the fact that the golden rule, this do unto others as you would have them do unto you, so to speak, is found in similar but always negative forms elsewhere. Confucius, for example, is credited with having said, Do not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. The Stoics had almost an identical maxim. Rabbi Hillel, who said this, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary. Now, I thought about this in my life. I I, I have spent in my life spending a lot of time telling people what not to do, telling people what uh, what to avoid. You think about it in particular in parenting. Most often in, in parenting, you're saying things like, don't hit your sister. <laughs> saying that I don't have that cookie before dinner. It'll spoil your appetite. Don't break curfew. If you break curfew, you're going to be in big trouble. Don't text while you're driving. We as parents, if, you, if you're a parent or if you're uh, a child, you can think of things where parents have said, now don't do that, right? But that's not where Jesus is going with this. He's talking about what we ought to do. I think I actually probably would have been a better dad if I'd said to my kids, you know, you probably ought to think about doing this to your sibling. You ought to, you ought to think about living a certain way that will, will end up benefiting you by the choices that you make. So Jesus is wanting to expand our passion, not the things that we should avoid, but rather those things that we ought to do. And notice how he, uh, how he defines the people to whom this attention should be given. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. That's a pretty loose parameter, is it not? I mean, a lot of people fall under the category of others. People I love, friends, family members, right? Uh, Total strangers fall under that title. People I've Never met in my life. People maybe I'm um, um, in a, in a uh, traffic jam, you know, with, together. Never seen them. Maybe never see them again. People that are rude to me. People that don't do my list, that, that don't live up to my expectations, that aren't forgiving to me. People that don't encourage me in my faith. People that don't give me the benefit of the doubt. All those folks are included in others. You see, when Jesus expands our vision, he makes it universal. There's no one that falls outside of that list. Jesus not only sees our keen self-interest, but he wants to expand our passion so that we care very deeply about others. Thirdly, I think this text infers something. I think Jesus is inferring a godly use of our energy. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. In other words, don't spend time being so consumed with your rights that you don't have any energy left 
for anyone else. Rather, start with the notion and the premise that as a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to care for others. I'm going to start out with the primary purpose that I want to do to them what I would want done to me. So I'm actually going to emphasize, uh, I'm going to de-emphasize my rights, my privileges, my expectations. I'm going to shift my focus away from that and I'm going to shift my focus on to caring for others. So I thought this week and spent some time in prayer this week about how does that actually look in my life? What would that look like in your life if, if, I, if we really took that seriously? If I said to the Lord, I really do want to love others the way I would like to be loved, what would that look like? And I came up with the discipleship trifecta. Um, and there's three pieces to this. And I, and I think that one builds on the other. And I actually think it's, it's kind of taught throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But if I'm going to care for you in the way I would want you to care for me, it has to start with my noggin. It's got to start with what I think about you. It's got to start with me wanting emotionally and spiritually, psychologically wanting the best for you. So that when your face pops up in my mind, there's a thought there that that leads me down the road of wanting to care well for you. I cannot fulfill this commandment of Jesus and hold spite in my heart towards you. I cannot follow the Lord and honor Jesus in the way that I treat other people if there is anger that is simmering below the surface, if there is resentment, if there are words that are unspoken between us. If there's any kind of emotional negativity in my heart, I am not going to be able to follow Jesus in this. I'm going to spend more time thinking about perhaps how you've wronged me or what you're not doing right, and then I'm, I'm, I'm sunk before I ever get started. Well, the first prayer here for me is, Lord Jesus, help me to think the right thoughts about the others that you're going to bring into my life today that you want me to love in the same way I would like to be loved. That moves then to my words. I can't talk badly about you and love you well in Christ. If you know me very well at all, you know that I absolutely detest and hate to the depths of my soul the sin of gossip. I've seen it destroy so many people's lives and relationships. I've seen it destroy churches. I hate it with all my being. I don't think there's another sin that I hate more than gossip. And yet I can tell you as I stand before you that I have gossiped about other people in my life. The very thing I hate, I've done myself. But brothers and sisters, we have to take this very, very seriously. If we're going to love one another well, what comes out of our thoughts has to be the appropriate language. It has to be words that speak the truth and love. There may be times when we have to correct each other. There may be times when we have to call one another to account. That's actually loving the other person the very best way possible is to share something with them that maybe they don't want to hear. But are we doing that in a way that is honoring to Christ because our thinking's in the right place? You see, our words are built on our thoughts and our actions are built on our words and our thoughts. So it goes together. If my mind is submitted to the mind of Christ, so that the words that come out of my mouth are words of encouragement, words of blessing, words of affirmation, even when they might be words of correction, if I'm thinking I want the best for the other person, then that will lead me to do the things of love, to follow Jesus with my actions. In other words, I'm thinking every thought is what is God's glory and what is for the other person's best. When I speak words, I'm thinking what words will bring glory to God and and what words will offer the very best for the other person. When I then begin to act, 
and begin to engage with others. I'm thinking, what is for God's glory and what is for the other person's best? So I found this, uh, I found this video. It's actually commercial. It's actually commercial. I'm going to tell you right up front. It's a commercial for life insurance in Thailand. <laughs> so you can tell how much time I have on my hands during the week. Uh, actually, a friend of mine a, a, about two months ago sent this to me, and he said, I don't, I don't know if you'd ever need it. And I was saying this, this text that I was ta- thinking about, you know, the energy I use to care for others. Is that really part of my life? And I thought back to this commercial. So it's about three minutes long. You're going to have to read the subtitles unless, unless you speak Thai. If you speak Thai, you'll understand it. But watch the screen and thinking about words and, and or thoughts and words and actions. I'm still trying to figure out what that has to do with life insurance. I haven't, I'm not smart enough to follow it. Um, that video is like 92% right until it gets to the end and it asks the questions, what does he get? And what he gets are, are good feelings and, and what he gets are, are wonderful emotions. Um, and that's true, but that's not all. And in the context of being disciples of Jesus, there's something much, much more profound and much deeper. And it's, it's my fourth observation in this passage. Not only does Jesus see our self-interest and want to expand our passion to include others, not only does Jesus infer that, that our energy needs to be used in a godly purpose, but Jesus shows us in this text the heart of our God. There's so much more than just, just good emotions or satisfaction in helping other people. Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is, this is the entirety of the law and the prophets. In other gospels it says this sums up the law and the prophets. So I, I want to remind you this morning that Jesus isn't just reflecting back on Moses and on the prophets as if, you know, remember our ancestors long ago, these brilliant people, these, these wonderful folks who had these keen insights, but he's reminding us the origin of his words come directly from the mouth of God. Because the Mosaic law, while, while it was in human form written by Moses, it was given by God. If you go and you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all those, all those little small books at the very back of the Old Testament, you will find over and over and over again, the prophet doesn't speak for himself. The prophet doesn't say, you know, I've been looking around Israel and I got a few complaints. I'd like to register with folks. He says, thus saith the Lord. And when we see the world through the eyes of our God and we begin to see that he calls us to love others and to do to others what we would have done to ourselves, what we find is that truth has been there all along. I'm going to just give you three very brief examples of this. Out of the book of Leviticus, uh, part of the law, part of the Mosaic law, when you reap your harvest on your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather gleanings, those things that fall kind of behind you, after you harvest. You should not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. Why not, Lord? Why can't I get everything I can possibly get out of my farming enterprise? Well, no, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Because that's how I look at this world, the poor. The, the alien, the stranger, 
Who's going to care for them? God cares for the broken. Let me take you to another part of the uh, law, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law in chapter 15. And at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release from what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it from his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Because God is in the business of forgiving debt. That's why that cross sits up here every Sunday to remind us that you owe a debt and I owe a debt that we can never, ever repay. It is the debt of our sin and the debt of our rebellion. And the books are balanced against us. And if we're not forgiven, then we are lost. And the reason why God gave this example in the Old Testament every seven years, let people go from their debt, is to remind them that they had been set free by God as well. One more out of the prophets, out of the last book of the Old Testament, these words were spoken and written down about 400 years before the earthly ministry of Jesus. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. So there's something that's gone terribly wrong in the nation of Israel. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and adulterers and against those who swear falsely. Well, yeah, we get it. Those are the really bad, bad, awful people. Oh, wait a minute. Against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and by doing so, what? Do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see, what Jesus is inviting us into is seeing the world through the lens of God. He's inviting us to take on the heart and the mind of our God. He's inviting us to understand that actually what Jesus is preaching was what Jesus was living because Jesus is the manifestation of God's loving others in the way they need to be loved. So Jesus embodies the heart of God, and this is from the New Testament, Paul looking back into the life of Jesus, into the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and he says that we should consider Jesus, who though he was equal in the form of God, did not consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human form, he humbled himself. Why? Why did he do all that? To become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus could live out the lesson that he is teaching us today. So that Jesus could embody the notion and the truth. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. I don't think I have a bad list. In fact, I think it's a pretty good list. But I think maybe it should change. And I know there are other things that could go on there. But maybe instead of it being the focus about what I expect, maybe it could be a focus on how I live out this truth in my life. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that the Lord Jesus not only taught this lesson, but he lived it. He lived it to the point of giving his life on the cross in exchange for my life, in exchange for the life of sinners in every generation. Lord Jesus, we can't begin to express our gratitude for what you have done for us. But you have said that one of the ways that we can enter into a life of gratitude, enter into a life of discipleship, 
enter into the experience that being in a relationship with you brings is to take on the mind of God, to love others, to care for others in the manner in which we would want to be cared for ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you would bring to mind for all of us where we're struggling. Uh, Lord, it would probably be more uh, faces of people with whom we're in disagreement or we hold in low esteem or, or we just don't like. We don't want to treat them this way. People love us. It's easy for us to love them back. But, Father, make us very, very different. Do something that we could never do ourselves. Create something in this spiritual family that could never be created by our efforts or our energy or our know-how. Father, create within us a passion to see the world the way you see it and to think always how to glorify you and love others by doing what you have called us to do, by putting your glory and their good ahead of our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.